morning, church. I want us to, uh, as we dive into Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, uh, to journey through first the story of a man named Bart Millard. And Bart Millard grew up in a family that, at least for all intents and purposes, on the outside, seems pretty normal, pretty average. Bart's father was a man named Arthur Millard, who had been a rising football star at Southern Methodist University, and after he graduated, he'd moved home to Greenville, where he married his uh, sweetheart, Adele. And together, Arthur and Adele, uh, soon after their marriage, started a family together, and they had two boys. They had an older son named Stephen, and then a younger son named uh, Bart. And early on, their family life was, was good. They had loving parents, and everything seemed to be just going great. One day, Arthur uh, was getting ready for work, just as normal, and he went to his job where he worked at the Department of Transportation. And, and tragically, on this particular day, Bart was struck by a semi while on the job. Miraculously, not a bone in his body was broken. That in itself seems like a miracle. However, there was damage done to uh, Arthur's brain. He had a traumatic brain injury. And after that moment, he was really never the same person again. Where he had been pretty even keeled, maybe even easygoing, he was now prone at the drop of a hat to fly into fits of rage, and it it caught people off guard. Now, to his credit, he never uh, laid a hand physically on his wife, Adele, but uh, but there were uh, emotional scars. And there was a sort of psychological trauma that she experienced when Arthur would fly into a fit of rage. He wouldn't hit her, but he would destroy everything of hers that had value. He would just start smashing and breaking it. And Adele is doing her best to come to terms with, this man that I married is is not the same man anymore. And finally, Adele walks out on the family when their youngest son, Bart, is just a third grader. Now, how, how in the world does a third grader make sense of this reality that my mom isn't here, my dad is not who I knew him to be, and there's now a fear of the unknown world that Bart lives in? Now, tragically, what happened after Adele left is that uh, Bart's father, Arthur, became even more violent, and he focused his violent outbursts now on his youngest son, Bart. What, what used to be maybe a disciplinary spanking would now elevate into an all-out vicious beating. And how does a third grader, how does he process that? That this person who's supposed to love and care for him is now violently taking out his rage on him. Bart, as a young man, began to be filled with anger and resentment, hostility towards his father. And for the next 12 years or so, they, they really didn't have a relationship to speak of. Why would they? Every time his father was around, Bart would be fearful of when's that moment when he snaps and flies into a rage. And so he basically wrote off his dad, I'm going to do my life. I'm going to try to avoid him. And I'm just accepting the fact that I will never have a relationship with my father. That's what you do to survive. During his freshman year, uh, Arthur comes to his youngest son, Bart, and he says, I need to tell you something. He says, I've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. They don't know what the prognosis is going to be, but I wanted you to know. (laughs) What what does he do with that, right? I I don't know you. You've never loved me. Do I feel uh, grief? What am I supposed to feel in this moment, right? That anger, that hostility is there. But in ways that he didn't know how to put words to, Bart said, I I begin to see a difference in my father. And, And at first, you can imagine the hesitancy. 
Arthur, after his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, had started to read the Bible and um, occasionally Bart would even overhear him praying. And you can imagine there were some eye roll moments like, oh yeah, you found God now, right? Arthur began to attend church and in a way that can't be described in any way but miraculous, Arthur was, was different. Actually, even his medical team who was working with him said, we're not really sure how to explain what's happened in his life. Where there was once anger and rage, Bart was, or Arthur was becoming a uh, gentle, easygoing person again. And, and in a way that Bart would later describe as miraculous, he said, I began to open up my heart and life to have a relationship with my father. And he said, I could only explain it in that Jesus did a work in his life. And there was this massive movement of reconciliation that apart from the grace of God would not happen. And for the last six years of his father's life, Bart and Arthur developed what he called a close, intimate, and loving, nurturing relationship because of the miraculous work of transformation that God did in Arthur's life when Arthur found Jesus. Later, uh, six years after his diagnosis, as uh, Bart Millard was standing next to his father's grave, his, his grandmother was there with him and she said, Bart, I can only imagine what your father's experiencing in this moment. That would later be the inspiration for Bart Millard, who's the lead singer of Mercy Me, to write the song, I Can Only Imagine. It's a story about his reconciliation with his father and his father being a changed person who's now in heaven with Jesus. And, and I tell you that story because I think it illustrates something powerful, something that I think we, we want to hold at arm's length. And I think it's the power of reconciliation that's possible in and through Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, if you have areas of wounding or brokenness in your life, if you have people who've mistreated you, sometimes we want to hold those places at arm's length and assume that reconciliation isn't possible. But in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to encourage the believers in the church at Ephesus to reconcile and wrestle with this question, how do we live as the reconciled people of God? Right? That's, that's our big question this week. How do we live as the reconciled people of God? Now, this is part of, I think, the bigger picture of Ephesians, where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says, I want you to wrestle with your identity as God's people and what that means for the ethics of how you live. Part of the big picture of the book of Ephesians is identity and ethics. Who are you, and how do you live because of that? And, and Paul ultimately roots our identity firmly in Jesus Christ. So as God's people, how, how do we live that out? And specifically this week, how does that work in matters of reconciliation? Where there is hostility, anger, where there's relational disconnect, how do we begin to find a way forward? So in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Paul begins addressing this very issue. In verse 11, he says this. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So Paul begins this section, he says, I want you to remember your identity. Remember who you are. And this even goes back to what Pastor Steve talked about last week. You are God's masterpiece. That's Ephesians 2.10. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. You have a purpose. You have an identity rooted in Jesus. But now Paul says, I also want you to remember who you used to be. He says, I, I want you to think back, right? Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, remember you were separate from Christ. And Paul begins to describe this uh, two uh, phases of relational disconnect in their life. Paul says, remember that you used to be relationally disconnected from God. 
You did your life your way. You didn't surrender your plan, your purpose to God's authority. You essentially just said, I'm going to live life how I see fit. Now, that disposition of orienting your life away from God, of pursuing your own path, your own plan, your own purpose, uh, that disposition the Bible calls sin, right? I'm going to live life independently of what God wants for me. And that leads to a place of relational disconnect. In fact, I think Paul uses stark language. He says, at that time, you were without hope and without God in the world. That, that, that is a bleak place to be, without hope and without God. And that divide, that relational disconnect between me and God, this is a chasm that I cannot, I cannot cover that distance. It's impossible. And, and I think we live in a culture, as Paul says, that is without hope and without God. And what I want to suggest to you is anything that you are searching to put hope in, aside from Jesus Christ, anything that you put hope in, anyone that you put hope in, apart from God, will let you down or will fail you at some point. And Paul says, when you lived independently of Christ, that's how you live, relationally disconnected from God, without hope, without access to the promises that God had for the people of Israel. Now, in this passage of scripture, Paul also points out a second relational disconnect. Did you notice this language? He says, remember that you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. And Paul begins to hint here to something he'll address more fully later. There is a relational disconnect. There is hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. That, that phrase, you who are called uncircumcised, that was sort of a slur, right? That was a negative thing. The Jews who are circumcised, right? And their circumcision was a mark of the covenant promise with God. God said, one of the, the, the indicators that you are walking as my chosen people is that you will be marked in your physical body through the act of circumcision. Males, eight days after the birth, would be circumcised as a mark indicating that they were set apart in service to God. So the, the, the Jews, they would look at the Gentiles and call them, oh yeah, yeah, the, the uncircumcised. And this was further brought to bear in, in the way that they worshipped. You know, if you would put the picture of the temple up here. In, in the way that they worshipped, this disconnect between Jew and Gentile was made even more prominent. You, you'll notice on this far outside edge here, it says the Gentiles courtyard right here. If you were not a Jew and were not circumcised, you got to worship out here. Y'all, they didn't even let us in the front door, right? Now, if, if you were a woman, you could uh, worship in the women's courtyard. If you were a Jewish male who had been walking in faithful observance of the law, you could proceed beyond that. But only the high priest could enter the, the holy place and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so what is communicated in worship is that God resides in the temple and there was a thick veil between the, the most holy place and the holy place. God is in there and we are out here. And by the way, if you're a Gentile, you're out the front door. And, and there's this relational, I'll, I'll say hostile relationship often between the Jews and the Gentiles. Church, can I, can I make a, a cultural observation for us today? I think we live in a culture that experiences a similar kind of hostility and division and disunity as what Paul was addressing back then. I think we live in a culture where there is racial, economic, and political division that is often hostile and that is often a, a place of deep brokenness in our culture. Right? We, we have seen racial protests break out over the last couple years over the racial injustice that still exists in our country. 
We have seen political protests uh, break out all over the place, divided along lines of Republican and Democrat, liberal, conservative. Right? We've seen, I think, even economic protests. If you follow the stock market, you probably saw the last couple weeks where a bunch of amateur investors bought GameStop stock. A store that I didn't know even still existed, right? And they did that to stick it to hedge fund investors, those evil one percenters who have all the money, right? That was, in a sense, a form of economic protest. And what we want to do is we want to define ourselves by these identities and labels and draw a line of disconnect. And, and there, there is a level of hostility and just a level of discord culturally that I, I don't know if I've ever seen in my short lifetime to this point. I've seen families broken apart. I've seen friendships broken apart. I've seen marriages broken apart. And and, and I think the question is, how do we heal that divide? How do we bridge this gap where there is open hostility? How is that possible? And culture, by the way, is looking for all sorts of ways. There's theories and legislation, all kinds of ways that we might bridge that divide. But what we don't want to admit is that the core problem of the division and disconnect that we see is a sin problem. It's fundamentally a spiritual issue. I would rather make it someone else's problem, right? We want to look at what's broken and go, wow, it's those Democrats, it's those Republicans, and they're, you know, if they would just do what I do. And what we don't want to look is the brokenness that exists inside of us and say that I am a sinner in need of God's grace and reconciliation, right? The division and disunity that exists behind racial and political and economic divides is at its core a spiritual issue. And I want to suggest to you that the truth is that we need a Savior who brings reconciliation both with God our Father and with other people. We cannot bridge this and fix this divide ourselves. I think a humanistic worldview says we are good enough, we are capable enough, we are clever enough, we will solve all our problems. Paul says, before Christ, y'all are without hope and without God in the world. How are you going to fix that? Right? You cannot fix that apart from a Savior who brings reconciliation with God and with others. Right? And this is what Paul is drawing their attention to. So this is where he goes next in verse 13. He says, but now, that, that signifies a significant contrast. You were without hope. You were without God. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And and Paul here begins to say, remember what what God has done for you, what Jesus has done for you. And, And remember that through the blood of Jesus Christ, there is reconciliation that is offered to you. You who were once far away have been brought near. This is the language of relational reconciliation. This is the language of restoration. And so what happens is in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, right? Paul says, by his blood, scripture tells us that the wages of sin, wages is something I earn, wages is something I deserve. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And Jesus demonstrates his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the blood of Christ that brings peace and reconciliation. I'll flesh that out in a second. First, I think we have to define what peace is. I think often, conceptually, we think of peace as the absence of conflict or the absence of chaos. You might think of peace as a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning just watching the cold outside where you're all snugged in, right? That's a peaceful moment. But biblically, peace is so much more than just the absence of conflict or the absence of chaos. Biblical peace is about a life lived in relational connectedness to God that results in wholeness and well-being. 
Now, Paul here is quoting uh, later in verse 16. He says, when, when he came to preach peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near, he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And in the Old Testament, Isaiah uses the Hebrew word shalom. And the word shalom for peace is much more than the absence of conflict. Uh, Klein Snodgrass, who wrote a, a commentary in Ephesians, he describes shalom this way. This is the Hebrew word for peace. He says, shalom is much more than merely the absence of conflict. It refers to the way life should be. And it's a gift from God that's received only in his presence. When it says that, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, what it means is that in relational connectedness with the God of the universe, reconciled by Jesus, by his blood, you experience this shalom, this deep down sense that at the core of your being, that I am right and well and whole because Jesus is doing a transformative work in me. Peace is so much deeper Right? Then the absence of conflict or chaos. Peace is about life meant, is lived as it was meant to be lived, as it should be in connection with the God of all the universe. That leads to a deep down sense of wholeness and well-being as God does his transformative work in me. And through that reconciliation with God comes peace. Now, here, here's what I need to flesh out for us. Because here's what Paul deals with here. Is there's two dimensions of, of reconciliation and peace. Now, the first is a vertical dimension of reconciliation, and Paul talks about how we are reconciled with God. But now, in Christ Jesus, y'all who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This means that we can be relationally connected with God. How? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That in his death on the cross, Christ reconciles us back to the Father. He dies the death, right? This is the substitutionary atonement. That's the theological term. He is the substitute. He atones for, pays the penalty for our sins, which means now I can be relationally connected back to God. This is where we begin to experience that shalom, that peace, that sense that deep down I am right and good at whole because where once I was without hope in God, now I am living in hope in Christ Jesus in relationship with the God of all the universe, Right? This is a beautiful picture of God's forgiveness. Now, here's the second dimension, though, that Paul talks about. Is there's a horizontal dimension of you and I being reconciled and reconnected relationally with others. Right? Here, here's what Paul says. Verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here. Those two groups he's made one. Right? He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How do you do this? Verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Noah, if you would put that picture of the temple back up, please. So in, in the Gentiles' courtyard, when Paul talks about the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, several scholars have suggested that the, the, the a church in Ephesus, they would be picturing the Gentiles' courtyard. There is archaeological evidence. They have found signage that says, Gentiles, if you proceed beyond this point, we're not responsible for your death. That's hostility, right? Don't, don't enter. There, there was literally a, a solid dividing line that said, you cannot enter this. And not only that, the way to righteousness was through adherence to the laws and the regulations and commands. But what Paul says is in verse 15 that Jesus set aside in his flesh when he died on the cross. What Jesus declares is that righteousness, reconnection back to the Father, is not found through the Jewish law. Reconnection and righteousness back to the Father is found in the sacrifice of Jesus and what he did on the cross. That is sufficient to reconcile us back to the Father. Now, it's not that he abolished the law. What did he set aside? He didn't set aside the law. He set aside the regulations and commands of the law. 
There is still good truth and God's wisdom and guidance for our lives, but the way to right living is found through the blood of Jesus that atones for us. And so there's reconciliation, right, with God, but also he's made the two-one. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And church, what I want to suggest is that as, as God's people, as Christ followers, the barriers and the dividing walls of hostility that we see culturally should not exist within the church. Right? Because when we are reconciled to God, that flows outward and we begin to be reconciled with others. Why? Because God is fundamentally a reconciler. And if you are going to be made in God's image and transformed so you more and more look like Jesus Christ, you will more and more and more look like a reconciler. Right? And especially here, this should be a community of reconciled people asking, how are we reconciled one to another? Now, here's the challenging thing. If I'm reconciled with God and I'm trying to be reconciled with somebody else who doesn't know Jesus, the hard part is I cannot control their response. But all I can do is offer grace and forgiveness and compassion and truth. But it's up to that person whether or not they're going to respond to that. All I'm responsible for is living out the character of who Jesus has created me to be and who he's more and more forming and shaping me to be. Does that make sense? Now, here, here's part two of this sermon that I won't have time to preach as we watch through Ephesians is the how of reconciliation, right? It's easy to talk about this. Y'all, this is tough work. This means working through my own brokenness. It means working through my own sin issues. It means working through my own places of insecurity. It means forgiving people that sometimes I'd rather not forgive, right? But when I look at Bart Millard's story and his ability to forgive his father and be reconciled, I go, man, if somebody like that and the deep hurt, anger, and resentment he feels, if he can experience reconciliation because of what God has done in his life, I think it's possible, right? And I want to suggest to you that that peace and reconciliation are, are found finally and fully in Jesus and through the access that he brings to the father, right? This is what Paul says at the end of that chunk of scripture, verse 16. He says that in one body, he reconciled both to God through the cross, Jew and Gentile, as he came and preached peace both to those who were far away and those who were near, for through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father. And so Paul goes back to this place of disconnect between Jew and Gentile, and what he says is that in Jesus Christ, in the one body of Jesus, and the new community that he is building, right, Jew, Gentile, they both have access to the Father because of what Jesus has done, and they are becoming God's people, The Jews and the Gentiles are now living and dwelling in in a unity because of this work of reconciliation that God has done. And, And I think what happens is we would rather hide behind all sorts of cultural identifiers, liberal, conservative, rich, poor, rather than recognizing that in Christ Jesus, we are being formed and fashioned into God's people. And our fundamental identity is wrapped up in this reality that I am a redeemed and reconciled person called to step into unity with my brothers and sisters. And this is fundamentally to take place in the church. That in the church, the racial, economic, and political divide that we see in culture should not exist here because this is where we get down to the hard work of welcoming our brothers and sisters who don't look like us, think like us, act like us. Because church, when we get to heaven and we are surrounding the throne, shouting, holy, 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 there will be people who don't look like me, think like me, act like me. The more we live reconciled now, we are practicing for what the community of heaven will be like. When we live and dwell as God reconciled people, this becomes a snapshot of what heaven will be. 
That is serious work. That is a serious calling. Now, let let me flesh this out because here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that in Christ Jesus, our ideological positions don't matter. I'm not saying it's just kumbaya, come together, it's all relative. That's not what I'm saying because Paul continues and he talks about how we rediscover our purpose. Let me continue reading, verse 19. He says, consequently, because of the work Jesus has done, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Right? That's the language of you don't belong. You're no longer that. Verse uh, 19. But fellow citizens with God's people. Notice that language. Foreigners, strangers. Now you're fellow citizens. You're reconciled to God. And listen to what he says. And he says, and also members of his household. Notice that shift in language. From strangers and citizens, now you're part of God's household. You are part of God's people. Y'all, this is family. Every Sunday morning, this is a family reunion where we practice and work out reconciliation with both God and with others. Right? This is God's household. Listen to what Paul says, verse 20. This household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So what he's saying is that God is building a new temple, right? In him, verse 21, this whole building is joined and held together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, y'all too were being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, For the Jews during the first century, they knew God lived in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, on the Ark of the Covenant. That was the mercy seat. That was where God's presence was. But when you read the Gospels, what you find is that when Jesus is crucified on the cross, the veil, the the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else was torn in two, signifying that God no longer resides in the physical temple. This new temple that God is building is not a physical building. This new temple that God dwells is the corporate gathered community of Christ followers. The temple is not this church. The temple is the community of people that you are worshiping right next to right now. It is the gathered body of Christ. But notice what Paul says. He says this whole building is built on what? On the foundation of the prophets and apostles. This is the teaching of God's word. And the core foundation, the cornerstone of this, is what Christ Jesus has done. And listen, church, we find unity not because we all decide to say, well, our distinctions don't matter. Our ideological positions don't matter. No, no, no. We find unity because the ideological positions that we have that don't align with God's truth are crucified on the cross and we find unity in the teachings of God's word and in the sacrifice of Jesus where he says, you are changed, you are transformed. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Earlier, Paul said that in Christ Jesus, he is making one new humanity out of the two. The Greek word there that's used for new means unprecedented. God is doing something new and unique, unprecedented in and through Christ Jesus as he brings transformative unity. Also, what this means is that there are some positions as believers that we cannot hold to that are are cultural, ideological, philosophical positions that don't align with God's truth. We find unity around the teaching of God's word and around the work of sacrifice that Jesus has done on our behalf. And we experience both that vertical dimension of reconciliation back to God the Father that leads into horizontal reconciliation with our brothers and sisters that happens finally and fully in the redemptive work that Jesus is doing. And in that, we rediscover our purpose, right? Paul says this gathering is a holy temple. In in the first century, the temple of Israel wasn't the only temple. There were lots of profane, sacred, uh, profane, secular temples. 
actually in Ephesus, uh, they had this phrase, great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians, right? The Ephesians worshiped Artemis, who was a goddess of, of fertility and a goddess of plenty. And Paul says, that's not it. He says, this gathering of God's people is built to be a holy temple. When something is holy, it is set apart for worship to God. Church, our purpose is to be a holy people set apart for worship and reconciled relationship with God our Father that is evidenced in a unity of heart, soul, mind, body, pursuing Jesus together. And we become a picture of the redemptive work that God is doing. And so the racial, economic, and political division that we see in the culture should not exist here as we do the work of being reconciled back to God, gathered as his people, unified around our identity as God's sons and God's daughters. So how do we, how do we uh, apply this this week? I want to leave you with three simple things. First, I want you to think about reconciliation. Is there someone that God is calling you to be reconciled with? Maybe this is someone in your family where you've let a broken relationship go far too long and it's festering. Maybe this is someone who just annoys you, but that annoyance has built into resentment in your heart, right? And so when you see this person, you roll your eyes and God's like, hey, that's, that's my son, that's my daughter, right? They're one of my people too. Maybe this reconciliation is on a cultural level. Maybe it's more broad. Maybe you have anger and resentment towards somebody who holds a different position than you. And God's saying, hey, how, how do you show them love? How do you bear witness to reconciliation? How do you bear witness to the redeeming, transforming power of the gospel? Where, where do you need to experience reconciliation? Secondly, I want us to think about this. How do you reframe your identity? What truly defines you? Is it your identity as, as God's people? Is it your identity as God's son, as God's daughter? Is that the thing that, that defines who you are and how you live? And finally, I want us to dwell in this remembering. Paul twice called the people of Ephesians, remember who you are and what God has done for you. Remember what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. And so we're, we're going to actually live that out practically, tangibly right now as we take communion. And communion is this moment where we remember together what Jesus did on our behalf. That it is his death on the cross that reconciles us back to the Father that creates room and opportunity for reconciliation one to another. Hopefully as you walked in, you received a communion elements. Uh, if you didn't grab those, we've got some volunteers who are going to pass those out. Uh, we serve open communion, which means uh, you don't need to be a member. We just ask that you know Jesus as your Savior and you're welcome to participate with us. Um, if you'll hold on to those elements when you get them, if you haven't received them yet, uh, I'll come back in just a second and we'll partake together. Um, but take just a moment just to reflect on what Jesus has done for you. On the word that Paul said in, in verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ.